Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. All right, good morning again, everybody. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 16. We're going to be in Luke 16 this morning. Again, orchestra, you just sound amazing. It's such a blessing. I think the loud music, too, encourages me to sing louder, which is, which is a lot of fun, too. Luke 16, we are, um, I, I'm going through a series of the parables of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. So last week we looked at the parable of the dishonest manager, and now we're looking at uh, the account of the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, I do want to give credit where credit is due. I've talked about this guy before. His name is Kenneth Bailey. I think he passed away a few years ago, but he's a Presbyterian pastor. But he lived in the Middle East, and he understands the culture of the day, or he understood the culture of the day, and he's just helped me tremendously. So I'm excited about looking at this at this passage. Um, let me say this, just some words of introduction about the, the rich man and Lazarus. Some people think that this is not a parable, that this is actually a historical account. Uh, I'm not one of those, and I'll, I'll kind of explain why. But I do understand, I, they're trying to take the scriptures seriously, and some people think this is not a parable. And they usually say it's not a parable because Lazarus is given a name. And there's no other parable where a person has a name in a parable. Um, so my view is actually it, it is a parable, and I think Jesus gives the name Lazarus because the word Lazarus means the one God helps, okay? Also, I think this is a parable, as we'll see in this account, is because there's an account of people in heaven or in paradise having a conversation with people in Hades, people in hell. And I just don't think that there's no other place in Scripture that describes a conversation going on with people in heaven and hell. So I don't think that Jesus is giving us some sort of detailed account of the afterlife. I think this is, this is a parable. Okay, so the setting here in Luke 16, we're going to begin in verse 19. Uh, the setting, Jesus has been talking about the dangers of money. And last week we looked, as I said, the parable of the dishonest manager. And Jesus concluded that in verse 13 where he says, you cannot serve God and money. And now he's going to show about this guy who basically made money his God. Okay, so let's read the parable. This is Luke 16, verses 19 to 31. Follow along as I read. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. 
And he, the rich man, said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him, send Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he, the rich man, said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is God's word. All right, so let's walk through the parable. As I said, Jesus is teaching on the context of of the dangers of loving money. Money is not dangerous, but it's the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. So he's been talking about that, and then he talks about this rich man, as I said, has made money his God, and now he's in Hades, he's in hell. So let's walk through the parable. So verse 19, it says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. In the ancient world, purple clothing was extremely expensive. You could only make purple clothing from a couple of roots, and they were extremely rare. So if you wanted to show the world that you were wealthy, one of the things you would do is dress in purple clothing. If you dressed in purple clothing, you were showing people that you're wealthy. So this rich man is showing off his wealth. Also, Jesus says he was clothed in fine linen. There's actually a little humor here because fine linen, the word there is undergarments. So, so Jesus is saying, this dude is so rich, even his underwear is expensive, okay? So this is a rich dude. Next, next phrase, it says, he, he feasted sumptuously every day. Think about this. He feasted. He had a big feast every single day. He had servants. He had servants waiting on him every single day. Now think about this if you're a Jew. Remember the Sabbath. See what Jesus is saying? He's saying that this rich man is not observing the Sabbath. He's requiring his servants to work every single day to feed him. So this man is not a follower of God's law. He's completely self-centered. He doesn't care about his servants. He's just not a faithful Jew. I think that's what Jesus is setting up in this. Verse 20, it says, And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. As I said, Lazarus means the one... God helps. Now, we may think at this point in the story, it doesn't sound like God is helping Lazarus because Lazarus is crippled. He can't even walk. So his friends have to set him down at the gate of this rich man. So Lazarus is sick. He's crippled. He's very poor. And at this time, in this culture, it was expected that the rich would take care of the poor in the community, at least at some minimal level. They didn't have welfare, they didn't have Medicaid or anything like that, so it was expected that the rich would care for the very poor in some way, okay? So it says, it says it sent, they set him down at the gate of the rich man, so there's a picture of this, this is a typical structure of the houses back then, there'd be a house and there would be a wall around the house, uh, it wouldn't be far off, it would just be a few steps, usually they just had a very small courtyard of a few steps, so there would be a gate there for security, So Lazarus, his friends take him, he's crippled, and they put him down at the gate around the the wall of the courtyard of this house. So think about it, if that's the case, that the courtyard was very small, then Lazarus would have been able to hear the feast going on inside. He would have been able to hear the conversations going inside uh, of the rich man's house. Continuing in verses 20 and 21, it says, Lazarus was covered with sores. He's sick, he's covered with sores. 
verse 21, and desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So the rich man is having feasts every day, and Lazarus just wants some scraps. So rich people often at this time would have guard dogs. These aren't like cute little puppies. These are scary dogs. And they would often have guard dogs inside the gates. So how do you feed the dogs back then? There was no puppy jowl. The way you fed dogs was scraps from the table. There are other places in the New Testament that kind of talk about this. So what it's saying is Lazarus just wanted some scraps from the table. The rich man wouldn't give him any. But the rich man has these dogs, and how is he keeping these dogs? He's feeding the dogs scraps. So what, what this is saying is the rich man is not even giving Lazarus really dog food. He's doing nothing to help Lazarus. And, and so then Jesus says, even the dogs came and licked his sores. This is pretty sad and pretty disgusting. So the rich man doesn't care at all about Lazarus. He has all this money, and God repeatedly tells Israel in the Old Testament to care in the Old Testament to care for the poor. But the rich man does nothing to help Lazarus. Verse 22. It said, The poor man died. So Lazarus died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. So Lazarus died, and there's no mention here about a burial, about a funeral. So it probably means he was thrown into a common grave. This is what often happened with poor people. There is no mention of a burial. Uh, The rich man didn't help Lazarus, but now what we see, remember Lazarus means the one God helps. Now we see God helps Lazarus. God saves Lazarus. And it says, God saves Lazarus, and he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. This is a figure of speech. Abraham's side was a place of honor. Uh, if you think about it, in a feast back then, you had the, the, the most important person at the feast. If you sat by his side, that was a place of honor. So Abraham is the father of the faithful. He's this huge figure in the Old Testament. So the picture of Lazarus being at the side of Abraham is showing that he is given this place of honor in heaven. What about the rich man? Continuing in verse 22. It said, the rich man also died. Notice this. It said, and he was buried. No, No mention of Lazarus being buried, but the rich man is buried. And he was probably given a wonderful and expensive funeral. Probably everybody in town talked about the rich man's funeral. But then look at verse 23. It said, and in Hades, being in torment, the rich man goes to Hades, goes to hell, and he's suffering in torment. Then, still in verse 23, it says, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So the rich man is in hell, and in this parable, he sees far off across this chasm, we'll see, He's he's in hell. He looks and he sees across this chasm. He sees heaven and he sees Abraham and he sees Lazarus at Abraham's side. Now notice this. The rich man, we're going to find out, he knows Lazarus. He says, send Lazarus. He knows his name. So he knows this poor guy that has been sat at his gate. He knows him. He recognizes him. He knows his name. But he did nothing on earth to help him. He didn't even give him dog food. Now, I would think at this point in the story, if the rich man is in hell and he looks across and he sees in heaven that Lazarus is now at a place of honor, he's suffering in hell, Lazarus is over there at the place of honor, he knows Lazarus, he remembers what he did to Lazarus, I would think the rich man at this point would repent. 
I would think that he would apologize to Lazarus. Say, I'm sorry for how I treated you on earth when we were alive. But that's not what happens. He doesn't repent before God. He doesn't apologize to Lazarus. Look what he does. Look at verse 24. It says, and the rich man called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And here's what he says. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. First of all, he says, Father Abraham. He's saying, hey, I'm a Jew, okay? I'm one of the tribe. I'm one of the good guys. Father Abraham. Then he says, have mercy on me. He's in torment. He's in hell. He's in anguish. And he says, send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. This is incredible to me. Because like I said, I would expect him to apologize to Lazarus. But he doesn't apologize to Lazarus. What, he, what does he do? He treats Lazarus like a servant. He won't, he won't even directly address Lazarus. Because Lazarus is a, a nobody. He is unclean. He's filthy. Even in hell, the rich man thinks there's this hierarchy between the rich and the poor. He won't even talk to Lazarus. He won't even address him by name. Instead, he says, Abraham, tell Lazarus basically to be my servant and come over here and serve me. This is his attitude. And this is one of the reasons I believe that those people who are in hell suffering don't repent. There's no repentance. There's no indication that they repent before God. They have no regrets about what they do. They don't like being in anguish. But they, there's no indication of repentance. Okay? So it, it, it's, it's tragic to think about. There's no apology. He won't even direct his comments to Lazarus. But he says, Lazarus should be my servant and give, give me some water. Verse 25. But Abraham said, child or son, this is actually a term of affection, technon. Abraham addresses the rich man with kindness, which is, is, is pretty cool. But he says, child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now Lazarus is comforted here And you are in anguish. So that's exactly what we saw in the beginning. The rich man received good things. He was dressed in fine clothes. He feasted every day. He got good things in his life. And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. Remember, Lazarus was poor and crippled and had sores over his body. So Abraham is reminding the rich man of this. And he says, but now Lazarus is comforted here. And he says to the rich man, you were comforted on earth. Now you're in anguish. Now the flames are on you. Now you're in torment. You're facing the judgment of God. Verse 26. And to me, this is the most fascinating statement in the parable. Verse 26. And I think the NASB actually has a better translation of this verse. So I'm going I'm to read it. Verse 26. And, and so Abraham is talking. Abraham's still talking to Lazarus. And he says, and besides all this, Between us and you, a great chasm has been set so that those who want to go over from here to you will not be able, nor will any people cross over from there to us. A couple of observations about this. First, I think this is very important. There are some people who teach that after after people die, that people are given a second chance. That after people die, they're given a second chance. And and many of these folks think that everybody in hell is going to be released and they're all going to go to heaven. 
The Bible never teaches that. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible never teaches that you get a second chance after you die. I think that's the point, one of the points of this parable. There's this fixed chasm. And Abraham says there's no crossing between this. There's no crossing between heaven and hell. It is a barrier that will never be crossed. Your destiny is determined while you are alive. Whether you trust in God or not. Whether you put your faith in Jesus Christ or not. This determines your destiny. There's no, you're not going to get a second chance in hell. Uh, again, I think that's the main point that Abraham is making. But also notice this. Abraham says... So that those who want to go over from here to you, rich man in hell, so that those who want to go over to you will not be able. Abraham is saying to the rich man, apparently, he's saying there are people in heaven who want to go over to you to help, but they can't. Now, in the parable, who could Abraham be referring to? Who could, who's the only person with Abraham in heaven in the parable? It's Lazarus. It has to be Lazarus. So I think what Jesus is hinting at is that Lazarus is willing to go over to hell to help the rich man. I think that's what he's saying. I think Lazarus is thinking, we've got it so good here, and I'm comforted, that I'm willing to go help the rich man. I'm willing to forgive the rich man. I think that's what, what Jesus is hinting at here. Lazarus, interesting if you notice, Lazarus never says a word in this parable. He never says anything. But by all indications, you get the sense that Lazarus is a faithful man who loves the Lord. He's kind and forgiving. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. Next, Abraham says this, Nor will any people cross over from there, rich man in hell, nor will any people cross over from there to us. Notice Abraham does not say that people in hell will want to cross over into heaven. Do you see that? There's a difference that Jesus puts in there. If you notice in the story, too, this, this blew me away when I first became aware of this. In the story, the rich man does not ask to go to heaven. He doesn't ask that at all. He doesn't want to get there. Now, the rich man wants to be relieved of torment, right? He wants the suffering to stop. But he never says he wants to go to heaven. It's almost like he's saying, okay, God is over there, the saints and angels are over there, Abraham and Lazarus over there, but I don't want to go there. You know, you religious weirdos, you can do your thing over there. I, I don't want to be there. I, I want to be relieved of my suffering, but, but I don't want to go, go near you. He, instead, he just wants Lazarus to come over here and, and relieve him of his suffering. Verse 27. And he, the rich man, said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him, to send Lazarus to my father's house. Again, the rich man is giving directions. And he wants Lazarus to be his errand boy. And he says, For I have five brothers. At least he cares about his brothers. I will say that. He says, I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. So the rich man says to Abraham, Send Lazarus, send him out of the grave, raise him from the dead, and send him back to earth. He says, send Lazarus to my father's house and warn my five brothers so that they will not come to this place of torment. Verse 29, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. So Abraham says they have Moses and the prophets. They have the Bible. They have the scriptures. That's enough. That's enough. And that should be enough for us as well. We, don't, we, we shouldn't need a miracle, right? We shouldn't need a miracle to, to see what God has told us in the scriptures. Then verse 30, 
The rich man then says this. He says, no, Father Abraham. He's going to correct Abraham. No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. To me, this is another incredible thing about the story. Now the rich man is going to correct. He's going to contradict Abraham. He's going to correct his doctrine. And so the rich man is in hell, and yet he says, Abraham, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm going to, I'm going to correct you on this. You're wrong. He says, if someone goes to my brothers, then they will repent. Verse 31, but Abraham said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, I have said repeatedly, I can't tell you how many times I have said that Jesus' resurrection is proof that Christianity is true. I've said that over and over again. The fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead shows that he's Lord. Remember, the rich man says, if someone rises from the dead, then my brothers will repent. But here's a question. Does everyone who, has, who knows about Jesus' resurrection, does every one of them repent and turn to God in faith? No, they don't. Jesus has been raised from the dead, and most people who hear that do not care. They don't care. They don't even think about it. They don't give a second thought to it. They don't care. As Abraham says, they aren't convinced even if someone is raised from the dead. Okay, so that's the parable. That's kind of, I'm finishing the parable now. I'm going to offer some points of application and I'm going to get you thinking about something as well. Points of application, let me give you a few. One, I think, and I think it's clear, especially when you read the context about money, I think Jesus is stressing how we must care for those around us who are in need. I would just ask you to pray about this. Look around in your own life. God sovereignly brings people into our lives that we can help. It's not an accident about the people he brings into our lives. God sovereignly brought Lazarus into the life of the rich man, but the rich man did nothing to help Lazarus. So look around you. Just look for people that God has brought into your life. Then look for tangible ways to help those people. Look for opportunities and then act. Take some action. Two, and I've already said this before, but when you die, this is a clear teaching of the parable, there's no second chance. There's no second chance. The chasm has been fixed. Three, the judgment of God is real. The judgment of God is real. If you refuse to put your faith in Jesus Christ, then be assured of this, God's judgment is coming. It's coming. You will not be able to avoid it. And it's terrifying. Jesus repeatedly described hell as being a place of torment, anguish, weeping, gnashing of teeth, place of utter darkness. God's judgment is certain and it's horrifying. So even now, I beg you, throw yourself on the mercy of Christ. Beg him to forgive you. And don't wait. Turn to Jesus now. Now, let me wrap up with, with some, by offering some pastoral advice. One of my goals, one of my goals is to clear away as many barriers to faith as I can. When I was not a Christian, I know this isn't forever, this doesn't happen with everybody. I was just talking with a brother and our situation is totally different. But when I was not a Christian, I had lots of questions. And I had a lot of mental barriers that kept me from coming to Jesus. 
And what I found was when some of those barriers were cleared away, then I was able to run into the arms of my Savior. Okay? So I want to be a pastor who moves barriers out of the way when possible. And since we're studying a parable about the torment of people in hell, I think this is a good time to address a common barrier to faith. I think it's the, I think it is, I think it's the most common. At least it was, it was a huge barrier to faith for me. And many people say this, and I've heard many people say this. They say something like this. I understand a lot about what you're saying about Christianity. They say, I, I understand what you're saying. And a lot of it makes sense. And they say, maybe I, I could possibly even believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead. In fact, I could imagine putting my faith in Jesus. So, Pastor, a lot of what you're saying about Christianity makes sense. But here's the problem. I simply cannot believe in a religion that teaches that non-believers will be punished in hell forever. They, they say, I just can't believe that. Lots of people say, I can't believe, and I want you to feel the weight of this, okay? And I want you to feel the, the weight and the pain of this. People say, I can't believe that non-Christians will be in torment and it'll never end. It makes no sense. Even people who have never heard of Jesus, they will be in torment in hell for millions and millions of years and it will never end. There will be weeping and gnashing their teeth forever. I, they say, I simply can't believe in a religion that teaches that. You feel the weight of that? There are a lot of people who think that. There's a huge barrier to faith for many people. This is very personal for me, okay? For me, there was no other issue that caused problems like this. So I want to offer some counsel in this. As I said, I want to clear away barriers as much as I can. And since we're examining a parable about the punishment of the wicked in hell, I want to address this. Here's what I would say. One, just generally, I would say this. When I said that and when people say that, they often, every single time, they underestimate their own sin. They underestimate their own sin. They underestimate the holiness of God. Okay, that's one thing. But two, and this may surprise you, <laughs> two, I would say this. If the thought of eternal torment is going to be a barrier for you trusting in Jesus, then I would say this, fine, don't believe in eternal torment. Don't believe it. Now, why do I say that? Because there are certain things, there are certain things that Christians can disagree about. There are certain things that Bible-believing Christians can disagree about, and eternal punishment is one of those issues. Here's another one. Here's another. I'll just put it out there. Our church believes in the doctrine of election. But you can be a Bible-believing Christian, you can love Jesus, and not believe in election and predestination. And if predestination is a barrier to faith, then I say, fine, don't believe it. Put it aside. Put it aside and run to Jesus. We can discuss predestination later. It's the same thing with eternal torment. Put it aside. It's this, so it's the same. If the never-ending torment of the wicked is a barrier to faith for you, then just don't believe in eternal torment, okay? I know this sounds strange. We can discuss it later, but right now I want you to run to Jesus. You don't have to believe in eternal torment to be a Christian, just like you don't have to believe in election. Now, let me make this clear. I want to make something very clear. Our church follows majority teaching on this issue, which is called eternal conscious torment. And I'm not backing down from that. But I care a lot more about you trusting in Jesus than us agreeing about the details of God's judgment. That's my view on this. 
And there are genuine Christians, people who love Jesus and believe the Bible, and they believe that the wicked will suffer judgment for time, and they'll be completely burned up. There will be no more. There are Christians who believe that. Now, what's clear in the Bible, and I've tried to make this as clear as possible through the parable, is that God's judgment is coming, and it's certain. But the Bible's teaching on exactly what will happen at the end of time is very difficult. Sometimes we brush over those difficulties, but it's very difficult. The details are hard to figure out. It's a tough subject. I'll just tell you that. It's a very tough subject. Okay, what about this account of the rich man and Lazarus? If if I'm talking to someone and I say, okay, this right here, right here, proof shows eternal torment forever. Well, it actually doesn't, and I'll explain why. It's clear that the account of the rich man's suffering is in Hades. And remember this, this, is, this the suffering in Hades is before final judgment. Remember what's going on in, while, while the rich man is down there? He says, my brothers are alive and they're going about business as usual. This is before the final judgment. So at this point, he's in Hades suffering and there are people on earth just going about their day-to-day lives. In Revelation 20, you can look at it later, Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15, it says that there is a judgment coming before the great white throne, and it says that death and Hades will give up their dead. Death and Hades will give up their dead, and all people will be brought before the throne of God for the final judgment. So this account of the rich man in Hades is before the final judgment. And as I said... There are Christians who believe that the wicked will be judged and it will be horrifying and terrible, but eventually these people believe that the wicked will be completely burned up and will be no more, okay? So what I'm I'm saying is this account of the rich man does not prove eternal torment. Now, let me me go on the other side. Some people say, okay, what, what these people believe is called annihilationism. If you've ever heard that word, annihilationism, and they say that's what Jehovah's Witnesses believe. And I don't want to be a Jehovah's Witness. Well, I would say this. Yes, Jehovah's Witnesses believe in annihilationism. But the Bible-believing Christians that I know who believe in annihilationism, they don't rely on Jehovah's Witnesses' teaching. I've never met one of them that does that. So just because a Christian believes in annihilationism doesn't mean that they're Jehovah's Witnesses. Also, this is the tough fact too, you know who else believes in eternal conscious torment? Muslims do. Does that make me a Muslim? Does that make me a Muslim because I believe in eternal conscious torment? So we can slap labels on people and we can not deal with difficulties. But, but what I care about is what the Bible teaches. Now, again, I want to keep stressing this. Our, our church holds to the eternal punishment view. And ever since Augustine, the church has held to this with few exceptions. Now, before Augustine, there was a lot of debate about it. But since Augustine, there, there hasn't been much question about it. And for me, and this may sound awful... Eternal torment really doesn't bother me. You know why? Because I trust God. I trust God is going to do the right thing. And so if the Bible teaches eternal torment, which I think it does, I'm going to trust God on that. And it just doesn't tear me up because he's going to do right. He's never going to do wrong. But again, I would say if this is a barrier to faith to someone, put it aside. You don't have to believe it. You can be And I've studied this a ton, and it's a difficult issue. But you can be a Bible-believing Christian and believe that at the final judgment, God is going to pour out his wrath on the wicked, and they'll be completely burned up, and they won't exist anymore. 
Now again, you can't take the Bible seriously and believe that the ungodly won't face God's judgment. There is no way to honestly read the Bible and believe that. As I said, Jesus talked about hell many, many times. But you can be a Bible-believing Christian and you don't have to believe that the torment will go on forever. And I'll give you one, again, I'm not teaching this, but I want to show you how difficult the subject is. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2. I want you to feel how, how difficult the subject is. So look at 2 Peter chapter 2. And I'm about done. Second Peter is New Testament. Kind of go to what Revelation and First and Second John turn to left. So 2 Peter 2, verse 6. And again, I just want to stress to you how difficult this, this issue is. It's not an easy thing. 2 Peter 2, verse 6. Peter is talking about the judgment of God. And listen to what Peter says. He says, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So Peter says when God poured out his judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, he turned those cities to ashes. Notice this, Peter says God condemned them to extinction. So Peter's saying the people of Sodom and Gomorrah are extinct. What happens when when an animal species goes extinct? It means the species is gone, right? What happened to the dinosaurs? They went extinct, they're gone. They've disappeared. They're no more. They cease to exist. So Peter is saying, what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah when God poured out his judgment on them? He turned them into ashes. They went extinct. So it seems like Peter is saying, again, this is how difficult this is. It seems like Peter is saying, this is, he says this is an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. Okay? He says they're gone. They don't exist anymore. That seems to be what Peter is saying. So what I'm saying, do you see the struggle? What I'm saying is you can be a Bible-believing Christian and not believe in eternal torment. I hope you see that. Now, again, I want to make myself clear. I'm not teaching annihilationism. I think that Peter is saying, is talking about things from our perspective, that the ungodly appear to be extinct. Their bodies may burn up, but their souls will be punished. Okay? And there are other passages, many other passages in Scripture that, give, that are a real problem for people who hold to annihilationism. But again, what I'm saying is a difficult issue. And I don't want to pretend that every issue in the Bible is easy to understand. There are good arguments on both sides. It's just like election. It's just like infant baptism. There are good arguments on both sides. And Bible-believing Christians can have different opinions on these issues. And they're just honest. And what I want, I'll tell you what I want for me. When I became a Christian, I was raised in a non-Christian home. I was agnostic until I was 25. I said, when God saved me, I said, I'm going to believe God what you say in the Bible. I don't care if it makes me uncomfortable. I don't care if it is not what I've been taught. I'm going to believe what it says. And I'm going to be honest. If there are difficulties in the scripture, I'm going to recognize those difficulties. I'm not going to brush them away and never think about them. Okay? So I want to know what God says. And on this issue, what I'm saying is it is a difficult issue. It's not an easy issue. And I don't want to pretend that it is. So again, if this is a bar- the reason I'm begging you is this, if this is a barrier to faith for you, put it aside. Run to, run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. 
Turn to him. The judgment of God is terrifying. Even if, even if they go away, can you imagine people that you love and you never see them again? Is that, is that all of a sudden, wow, you're, if someone teaches that or they have they in some liberal you know, view that God is, is easy going or something? No, it's terrifying. No matter what it is, it's terrifying. So turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. That's, that's what I'm begging you. God's judgment is real. Again, I'm finished up now. There's no second chance after death. There's none. Whatever holds in eternity for the wicked, it's terrible. It's awful. So just put your faith in Jesus Christ. You don't have to be like the rich man. You don't have to face the coming judgment of Christ. Believe that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Believe that he died in your place on the cross. He took, when Jesus was on the cross, he took all the judgment upon himself so it didn't have to come to his people. That's the gospel. That's what I want you to believe. And, and my, when I have friends and family that turn away from the gospel, and I think about the judgment of God coming on them, it breaks my heart. So turn to Jesus Christ. He is worthy of our praise. I think we're going to sing that a little bit. He is worthy. He is awesome. He is glorious and majestic. He's God. He's, he's worthy of our lives. So I just say, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, turn away from your rebellion and run to him. Put away the difficult questions for now. Just put them away. See Christ. See his beauty and his glory and run to him and allow him to welcome you home. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father and our God, we love you. We praise you. Thank you, Lord, for your love for us. Thank you for Jesus, for the story of the rich man and Lazarus. I pray, God, you'd use this. Lord, you know I've been praying all week that you'd use this to break a stony heart. So please, Holy Spirit, just allow people to, to see the beauty of Christ to turn from the wrath to come. Please, Lord, you're glorious. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for saving so many of my friends in here. You're so gracious. You, you, when you saved me, you took someone who was in utter rebellion, who I loved my sin, Lord. I loved just being in rebellion against you, and you picked me up and pulled me from the, the flame. And I'm so thankful. And, and I'm thankful that you saved so many of my friends here. So God, for those who have not bowed the knee to Christ, I pray that, that you would work in their hearts, Lord. We love you. Thank you for your word. Help us to be people, as I said, that love your word. And we just want to struggle with your word. Most of it's understandable, easily understandable. God, you've made this clear, so many things clear to us. And really, most of the time, it's not a problem of understanding. It's a problem that we don't want to believe it. So most of the time, it's a heart issue. But for... Difficult issues, Lord. Help us to struggle and just want to trust in your word no matter what. So we love you. We praise you, Lord. I'm so sorry I'm crying again. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.